Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOM LP Chapel Hill and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 13 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCLM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio and Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio and Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISAM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES Center. The GES Center is shaping the futures of biotechnology, by integrating scientific knowledge and public values. Now live streaming weekly colloquia. For more information, visit go.ncsu.edu GES or follow the center on Twitter at at GES Center NCSU. Finally, Radio and Vivo is underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. This week on Radio and Vivo, we will learn all about a new center at Duke University that has been established to help usher in the new age of precision medicine by improving methods of patient recruitment in clinical trials. We will meet its dynamic co-directors, Dr. Charlene Wong and Dr. Chuck Scales. Charlene Wong is an associate professor of pediatrics who specializes in adolescent and young adult medicine and health services research. Her research is based out of the Duke Department of Pediatrics, the Duke Clinical Research Institute, or DCRI as we will refer to it, and the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy. She earned her MD at the Emory University School of Medicine. And Charlene, welcome to Radio and Vivo. Thank you so much. Chuck Scales is an associate professor of surgery at Duke who received his MD from the Duke University School of Medicine in 2004. In his research and his clinical practice, he specializes in the treatment of urinary stones, which of course is of great in interest to North Carolina residents due to the incredible high incidence of the condition here in the Tar Heel State. He is also a member of DCRI, and Chuck, welcome to Radio and Vivo. Thank you very much, Ernie. It's great to be here today. Well, Charlene and Chuck, before we explore your individual research endeavors, uh, I'd like to spend much of our time learning about this new center that you two co-direct called the Behavioral Research Intervention Science Center, 
or brisk. Uh, what exactly is brisk and how did it come to be established? So BRISC stands for, as you mentioned, the Behavioral Research Intervention Science Center. And it's a center that we wanted to launch because as two clinicians who also do a lot of research trying to discover new knowledge about the way that we can improve the health and well-being of people, we our research interests really lay, lie in the space of thinking about how we can affect human behavior on top of all the different types of clinical care that we provide. And human behavior, as it turns out, is sort of at a common path towards any sort of health or also states of disease. And so the Behavioral Research Intervention Science Center is an intellectual home for the study of behavioral science and how we can use behavioral science, particularly the insights from the field of behavioral economics, to really improve the way that people make choices around their health and well-being. I see. Uh, well. Chuck, why are behavioral change and engagement so important in this endeavor? Well, I think as Charlene points out, at the end of the day, even for things like going through surgery, there are important steps in behavior that we ask patients to change. Um, if it's something as simple as taking a pill every day, right, that can actually be a very hard behavior. Um, for kidney stones, we try to prevent that. The number one intervention is, of course, drinking water. And you would say that, well, how hard is it to drink water? But actually, it's very hard sometimes for people, depending on what the barriers are you face. Um, and so these behavioral nudges really help people make good decisions um, or increase the chances of them making good decisions um, around these behaviors that we know are healthy or good things to do, like exercise, for example. I see. Okay. Well, uh, as you've both mentioned, BRISC uh, emphasizes behavioral incentives. Uh, why are some incentives effective and, and some are not? Or, or is that kind of the whole point of the center to make those kind of determinations? Well, there's, there's a lot of good evidence in theory that has been developed in this space, um, but there are also many unanswered questions, and I think that's really um, where we want to work. Um, we uh, are working on applying um, known interventions that there is evidence that they support. For example, if you have people on a team, they want to support each other as teammates. That's something we're taught from, taught from childhood, and in many ways we're hardwired for that. And there's good evidence that if you have people on our team, they have a goal, they will support each other in, in that team environment, the individuals on that team are more effective than if someone were to try to do that behavior alone. So there's empiric evidence around that. Um, but there are other areas that are important questions um, for these fundamentally psychological interventions, such as, well, we know that everyone is not motivated in the same way, and so are there ways that we can personalize this motivation um, for individuals and customize that in a precise fashion? I see. Go ahead, Charlie. Yeah, and I'll add to that. The types of, when we say incentives, I think a lot of people go to a financial incentive, right? Getting a gift card for going to the doctor to get your vaccines, for example. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But when we think about incentives and these types of nudges, they take many forms. Um, so ranging from financial incentives, but even for financial incentives, again, there is empiric data and theory to support why some types of financial incentives might be more effective than others. So for example, in that, that example that I just gave of getting a gift card if you bring your child to get their vaccine, for example, um, that would be considered a gain-framed financial incentive. You do something, then you gain something in return. There are other ways in which you can structure financial incentives. It's the design and the delivery of those incentives where you can learn from the theories that behavioral economics has brought to light where you can deliver that incentive in a different way. For example, giving people cash up front and then they would be at risk of potentially losing that if they didn't do certain behaviors. You could use things like lotteries, um, which can also be more motivating for people. So that's where we're really trying to leverage the known behavioral science principles to design these incentives in a way that we think will be more effective and that in several of our studies have been shown to be effective. Well, uh, I don't know if uh, you guys came across it when you were preparing, but I actually sit on a, the IRB at, at UNC, so we hear about this issue a lot. Uh, and, and one of the issues is whether incentives involved with a study are actually coercive. And, and I know the FDA has great concern about this as well. Um, what's, your, what's your take on that issue? I think it's an important question. You, know, you could frame that as when does a nudge become a shove, 
right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, it's important to understand that um, these um, social forces in particular can be motivating, um, but we want to be very attentive to um, what behaviors we're trying to motivate, um, that those behaviors are something that would improve health. Um, there's, a, there's full transparency um, about um, what we're trying to accomplish, and you know, oversight of entities like the IRB is very helpful. I think we, um, in clinical research these days, we're actually more and more um, thoughtful about how do we engage communities um, and participants and the actual design of the research even. Mm -hmm. um, and so sure. I think from that perspective, and frankly from a bioethics perspective, it's really important to engage people that might be participating in these, symptom, in these incentives in a way that they provide input and we really have meaningful interaction with them. Yeah, and I would just add to that that there are certainly a spectrum of how gentle to, to forceful, you know, these nudges can be designed. Though in all of these nudges, there is always, there should always be a choice that is available to a participant to make. Um, and then particularly in the space of research participant incentives, which is where we're really thinking about how is it that we get the people who, are, who have signed up to be in a trial to stay engaged with that trial because it's such an important component of actually doing research successfully. And it's a very costly you know, component of research endeavors is um, finding people to come into your study and keeping them in the study. So that's an area of particular interest of ours. I would say also that these incentives, they tur it turns out we're already being incentivized and nudged all around us anyways. For example, in research studies, there's almost always some type of incentive built in for the research participant. Our interest is really in, again, changing, informing how you could design and deliver those incentives in a way that's based more on behavioral science and behavioral economics so that you have a better chance of success. How, how big a problem is this? Uh, you say it is a, certainly a big uh, a hurdle for um, most research programs to acquire and keep participants. Well, it's a big challenge, and I think um, even starting with enrolling patients in clinical trials is a challenge. Yeah. Keeping them engaged throughout the duration of the trial. Sometimes these trials can last uh, for a couple years, maybe longer, and making sure that um, we wisely steward the investment that a trial sponsor is putting into that so that at the end of the day, we are actually able to address the scientific question and improve health that way. Mm -hmm. that, that's why this problem is so critical. And, and you know, there are clinical trials occasionally that fail because we can't enroll patients or we can't enroll participants and keep them engaged throughout the duration of the trial. Um, and then money has gone to waste that otherwise would be used to help improve people's lives. Um, and so I think those are the stakes at hand. And um, obviously, clinical trials in this country um, are a you know, multi-billion dollar industry, um, both from the government sponsored by NIH and also um, other sponsors that may have a commercial interest. Sure, especially here here in this area. Exactly. With the, this is ground zero for CROs, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, what about the incentive programs uh, that have limited or no funds for e evaluation? I know that's a... a topic that you're interested in. Why does that matter? So <clears throat> there are certainly a lot of incentive programs that have limited to no evaluation, as you mentioned. I'll just give one example. So in um, Medicaid uh, insurance programs, we did a survey looking at what types of incentive programs were made available to people who were insured by Medicaid or the beneficiaries within Medicaid programs. And we identified actually over 100 of these incentive programs that were being offered across the United States. Um, and essentially, almost none of them had an evaluation, and certainly not an evaluation that was publicly available so that other people who were trying to design similar incentive programs would be able to use that. And what we heard from the folks, we interviewed over 80 folks to figure out you know, what incentive programs were there, why they decided to do it that way, did they do an evaluation. It's not that people didn't want to do an evaluation, it's just that unfortunately there were no resources available, both financial resources, but also the expertise among the people who are working on these incentive programs to even know how they might go about doing an evaluation even if they had the resources available to them. It's another issue that we see with, for example, workplace wellness programs where your employer might give you a Fitbit and you know if you do a certain number of steps, you might get a discount on your health insurance or things like that. There, you 
you know, fortunately, we are seeing increasing evaluations in some of these types of incentive programs, but there are certainly many more programs out there that if we had more capacity to do evaluations would advance the science of how is it that we nudge people to adopt healthier behaviors more quickly. Well, it sounds like that's a, a primary motivation for establishing this center, that the, it, there needs to be an organized approach uh, and, and a, a nexus for the research. Absolutely, and that's our goal is to convene people um, and investigators that are interested in this area, both from across um, Duke University but across the triangle as well, because this is um, something that is of interest in, in many communities, many, many of the, across the scientific universe, scientific community here in the triangle. So I would just echo what Charlene said. It's critically important that we conduct evaluations in order to advance and understand the science, because sometimes we see interventions that are well-grounded in theory, Everything tells us that it was designed well and it should work, and then it doesn't work. And we need to understand why that could be the case um, in order to move forward and make sure that when we are making these investments to nudge people's behavior for better health, that it does actually lead to a productive outcome. Excellent. Uh, well, let's talk a little more specifically about BRISC, uh, the, the center that you, uh, you folks co-direct. Uh, on the website, you highlight three main capabilities uh, offered by the center, and I'd like to hear more about each one in turn. And the first was a precision incentive uh, for design, implementation, and evaluation of programs for payers and, and employers, employees, pardon me. Uh, tell us a, a little bit more about that angle. So the idea behind precision incentive is something that Chuck alluded to earlier, which is that one size doesn't fit all with these types of incentive programs, whether they're these types of financial incentives, the sort of social nudges, like Chuck was mentioning earlier, putting people in teams. And so the idea behind Precision Incentive is that we really want to help identify how we can more tailor the targeting of these incentives to people for whom we, there's going to be a greater chance that it's going to help them. Because everyone is different, the, way, the ways that people are motivated are different, and we'd like to be able to help identify that up front so that they can, we can then deliver to them an incentive package which is going to most likely help them. I would agree, and I think, you know, as one example of this in a study that I did uh, when I was a fellow, um, doctors are, let's say, a fairly notoriously competitive um, subtype of individual, and so we designed an experiment to see if putting people on a team that they had a natural allegiance to versus having an individual environment um, would actually support that. Um, and actually, as it turned out, being in that team environment um, where it was a group you already had an affinity with, in this instance, we um, put people in teams by their specialty. So a urologist and a pediatrician were all on a team, the anesthesiologists were on a team, and we provided them feedback about how their team was doing. And what we saw very clearly was about the second or third week of the study, which was focused on learning about quality improvement, the team, or the team environment was much better and was much more engaged in the educational programming. And I think that's just one example of how we should think about this and really target it um, to meet people where they are and do this in a very precise way because fundamentally, again, these are psychological interventions in many ways um, and we know everyone is different and how we identify those individuals and tailor something to that um, individual is really the goal in the long run. And it really also um, is a... Um perfect time to be thinking about doing this more precise targeting of, the, targeting of these incentives because the data science methods that we now have at our disposal to do this, building off the broader precision medicine initiatives, getting people the right drug for their cancer because they have the specific gene or these particular characteristics, you know, those types of um, analytic techniques are now available to us to think about applying in other areas such as behavioral interventions like these types of nudges that we're talking about. And so we also, within our team at Brisk, are working with folks um, from across Duke University and again the Triangle area who are real experts in this type of methodology. Well one of the uh, aspects you mentioned on the, on the website is this uh, entity called the Brisk Lab uh, which partner, uh, partners with state and federal grant programs and university health systems to improve health delivery. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, Brisk Lab, it's really the idea, again, that we are very focused on evaluation and science and creating new knowledge. 
um, and with funders from the various sources that you mentioned, but also really helping the patients that we see in our own clinical practices within our own health systems. And so as an example, we have a trial that we're launching just now looking at a nudge around opioid prescription behaviors of providers in the Duke Health System. Um, And that is a trial that has really been embedded within our clinical system, within our electronic health record, um, because and, and we're doing a very robust evaluation of this particular intervention. And that's what Brisk Lab is really all about. It's creating new knowledge, doing the science behind these incentive interventions. And you're also offering consulting, is that is that correct? That's correct, yes. So for interested um, entities, um, groups that may want to help design and implement this, um, we're doing this both internal to Duke. So we've had investigators that are trying to um, increase their engagement of participants in their particular clinical trial, for example. Mm-hmm. And they've approached us and say, well, here are the challenges we're facing. And then we're so able to... So do you to hear a lot of uh, people coming to you and saying, oh, my goodness, we're having such a difficulty yes. recruiting people? yes. Yeah, it's it's one of the reasons why we decided that the DCRI is a great place for this work, um, because we are all about clinical research and really engaging um, individuals in that clinical research and the participants is the bread and butter of what we do there. So it's a unique opportunity for us. And you sort of to again go back to one of your earlier questions. You know how big a problem is. is it's very rare. I would say that you hear that a trial has enrolled faster than their timeline or has over-enrolled or has perfect retention in the study. I mean, you know, in these clinical trials, the things that we are asking participants to come and do because, you know, they have some chance that they might themselves gain some benefit, say, if they are in a trial and they get put into the intervention drug arm, for example, and that helps you know, them with whatever disease that that is being treated, but they might also be placed in a placebo arm Mm -hmm. or they might be in the treatment arm and they actually get no, you know, benefit, but we're asking them to come in frequently for things like blood draws and filling out surveys. And so I think it is a a real, it's a real issue. Um, And so that's, I think we have had a lot of interest from our colleagues who are running these clinical trials, both from the principal investigator side, but also from the folks from on the operational side um, to say, you know, what can we do better? How, how could we design this better? We're giving them these incentives. It's not working. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, come help us. Sure. And they've actually also approached us not only for individual participants, but also many times a clinical trial is happening at many sites across the country, right? right. Sure. And, and sometimes you have certain sites that are very, very engaged, and other sites may struggle to enroll or be otherwise engaged. And so the question has been raised, well, how about at that level? Is there a way we can engage these entities um, or these groups in a in a way that will, again, improve them over, improve their performance overall, improve their ability to engage participants where they are, mm-hmm. and thereby make the, tr- make the trial more successful. Well, uh, as you alluded to, Charlene, uh, in my years on the IRB, never seen a, a, a problem of over-enrollment. It's always, you know, well, you, you were approved for, you know, 100 subjects, and uh, over the course of five years, you've enrolled two or things like that's an exaggeration, but that seems to be the nexus of the problem. Uh, so I, I think there really is a crying need out there uh, for the types of services you're offering. Um, what do you see as, as Brisk's main constituency? What, who do you anticipate are going to be your customers? It's a great question. So I think that um, clearly for research participant engagement, which is I think one of our um, there's a great need, as you just said, and there's a, a great interest on our part. Um, certainly, individuals that are in the academic research community uh, will be doing that. Um, you know, there may be other entities that um, we would partner with that are conducting clinical trials. Obviously, here in the Triangle, there are a number of clinical research, or, or research organizations, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, those would certainly be um, good examples of people that we would want to um, partner with for sure. We also are, have projects um, that are in discussion with uh, payers, health insurance um, companies who are often, as I mentioned, for example, with Medicaid, they had these types of incentive programs. Um, and there are other types of interventions that payers use that they are interested in having input on what's the best behavioral sort of design of these. Can you help us evaluate this behavioral intervention program? Um, also sort of related to payers, employers, um, again, in similar situations where they were seeing, you know, great, they're seeing great cost from the health and health insurance of their employees and are thinking very hard about how to improve that um, for their own business planning. 
Um, and then finally, health systems. Um, you know, as we as we mentioned, we have this one study that is already launching within the Duke Health System, and many others that are um, in preparation now. And then finally, many of our studies are actually direct to patient, direct direct to patients, to the people for whom they're going to see hopefully the biggest benefit because it'll be improving their own health. Um, and so we have you know various buckets of clients um, for the types of work that we're offering. I see. And I would just add on that um, we obviously are also particularly interested in this concept of the precision incentive and how do we tailor these incentives in a very precise way um, to individuals at the end of the day. Um, and so that's really where we see that we're truly advancing the science in addition to um, these applied um, uh, these applications of behavioral economics um, to, to solve specific clinical problems or, or health behaviors um, that other people, uh, that entities like employers or insurance plans have. Okay. Well, you've, you've both mentioned uh, repeatedly uh, the concept of behavioral economics. Uh, and that's something that I think maybe people are not readily familiar with. Uh, and uh, I have to ask you, is Dan Ariely involved with you? You folks, because I know he's the the pioneer in that field. Absolutely, and we've, and we've the Duke person. Yes, absolutely, and he's he's well known for his uh, incredible work in the field. Um, we definitely are uh, um, engaged with the Center for Advanced Hindsight, um, and um, I love that. Yes, title it's a great it's a great title, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and he's done tremendous work um, disentangling or, or, or understanding some of the basic phenomena about um, how these um, how these nudges can work. Um, or, or what some of the psychological interventions are that the factors that drive people to behave in a way that we actually observe. Um, and then we want to take those principles and apply them um, into you know, new situations, um, and particularly the healthcare setting, where frankly the science um, and the application of these principles is lags behind other areas uh, in all of our lives, um, such as you know, social media, for example. They leverage these kind of interventions all the time, right? Sure, absolutely. Well, I would uh, in encourage our, our listeners to go back into my archive from 2008 when I had Dan on the show just prior to the publication of his first book. So I think it was one of his first in-depth interviews. Uh, fascinating guy and who's done some real, uh, real pioneering work, which I can readily see would be completely applicable to, mm -hmm. to what you, you are up to. Absolutely. And I think I would just add that one of our goals in Brisk is to really bring together people from across the community at Duke that are interested in this area um, to really build a bridge uh, among the entities at Duke and make sure that we can create a community around advancing the science of behavioral incentives. And in addition to Duke, as Chuck mentioned earlier, also the broader Triangle area, I mean, we are fortunate to be in a community where we have multiple major universities and other clinical research entities. Um, and so we have been reaching out to colleagues sort of across the Triangle as we're building the community at risk. You are listening to Radio in Vivo. My guests today are Dr. Chuck Scales and Dr. Charlene Wong from Duke University. And we are learning all about the new center that they co-direct called the Be Behavioral Research Incentive Science Center, or BRISC. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about DCRI's Research Together program. What is that and how does it fit in with BRISC? Research Together is a program that is um, led by a group at DCRI that is really thinking heavily about how to engage participants in research endeavors. Um, we are very closely aligned with the group of Research Together, and in fact, much of the work that we're doing, we're doing together, um, because all of our work, which is dealing with how do we design smarter incentives for clinical research participants, exactly aligns with the mission of Research Together. They also do other work, for example, um, really creating a science around how is it that you engage participants in other types of ways, for example, on um, participant advisory boards within clinical research studies um, in, a, in a more meaningful way. How is it that you identify folks to, to serve in those roles and how is it that you train them so that they can f function effectively in those roles? And so we have sort of, I, we like to think of it as a, a little Venn diagram of the different types of work that we do. Um, and so we are working very closely with them. I see. Well done. Well, uh, Chuck, I don't want to let any more time go by without recognizing your recent Excellence in Research Award from the American College of Surgeons. 
for your paper titled, Just a Nudge, Applying Behavioral Incentives to Engage Residents in Quality Improvement Education. I think you actually have, have already told us a bit about that study, right? Well, I mentioned actually a predecessor study to that. Um, okay. So the study that was done when I was a fellow, we, um, we did it across many, many specialties. Uh, and what we learned, one of the important lessons learned, which again goes back to the point of evaluation, right, was that it's actually really hard to write a question that doctors who are pediatricians, urologists, and anesthesiologists all find equally meaningful, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so what we learned from that study was that maybe we should think in a different way and be focused on a specialty specific. So the study that you just mentioned that was a, received this award was done among approximately 35 urology residency programs across the country. So we basically went nationwide and we tested two different environments. So um, Charlene earlier mentioned these financial incentives and how you can, um, what we call loss frame them. So see you, you have a money amount of um, something you're um, entitled to, and there's a risk of losing that if you don't engage in a behavior. And then the other um, arm of that trial was based on teams, and it was based on your institution. So, for example, Duke versus Carolina, which, you know, I would say is fairly motivating, as we all know, in the triangle. Indeed. <laughs> so, um, and as it turned out, the results showed that being in that team environment was actually more engaging for the participants than those participants who were in a loss-framed financial incentive, um, which I think just speaks to the power that Charlene alluded to earlier, is that when people hear the term behavioral economics, we oftentimes just think about money. Um, but in reality, there are the social incentives um, as well as informational incentives that can be very motivating um, and perhaps maybe done at a lower cost than, um, than paying people for their behaviors. Lower cost, and I would also add potentially more sustainable because of the lower cost. Um, so, for example, in social incentives, depending on how you design it, if you're leveraging a network that already exists, say a family unit, a social online network unit, even after the study period is over, presumably that network, as long as people haven't severed relationships because of the study, presumably those relationships are still going to exist afterwards. And so whatever... Um, however that network has helped people achieve these different behaviors would still be available even after the study is um, over. I would say that is one of the downsides that we have seen in general with financial incentive interventions, even when designed very well based on the best behavioral science. If it's a financial incentive at some point, typically it ends. And what we see in the evaluations, once you take those financial incentives away, you do see an extinguishing effect on whatever behavior change was seen. And that was certainly something that we've seen in some of our own studies as well, and has been pretty broadly, unfortunately, a downside of thinking about how we leverage these financial incentives. But then again, on the flip side, I will add that we have these financial incentives that are all around us anyways, all the time. Can we use this, the behavioral science knowledge that we have to design them in a way that is smarter? Well, that is exactly where, where Brisk comes in to, right. to uh, figure all that out and exactly. improve the situation. How much uh, of your time uh, will you be able to devote to uh, Brisk activities? Um, well, both Charlene and I have uh, quite a, a fair amount of time that Duke has been able to devote to support our research. Um, we uh, both have grant funding to work in this area. Okay. And um, so I spend about 70% of my time doing research. Excellent. And yeah. I'm about the same. Um, and much, most of our work in each of our portfolios is related to BRISC. I see. But you do have your own individual uh, research programs and uh, like to kind of spend the balance of our time together exploring that a little bit because uh, you're both up to some uh, very interesting work. Uh, well, Charlene, tell us about your, your individual research program. What are some of the things that, that you study? Um, in the sort of umbrella of my research portfolio is thinking about behavior change, how we get people to adopt and sustain healthier behaviors. And the vast majority of my work actually does leverage these principles from behavioral economics. Chuck uh, mentioned informational incentives earlier, um, and some of my work is really um, very exciting in that space, which is how is it that we return data back to people in a way that motivates them to change behavior. And the place where I'm doing, I would say, the most exciting work, in my opinion, is in the return of research results to mm -hmm. participants in clinical studies. And that is such a controversial area. It's a very controversial area. It's um, a very challenging area. And it turns out uh, an area that is very understudied 
because for the most part, historically, people haven't done that. Yeah. Um, so I'm happy to talk more about that. Much of my work also focuses on teens and young adults. Um, I am an adolescent and young adult pediatrician, and so it's both my population of clinical and research interest. And there are a lot of nuances in thinking about how we work with teens and young adults, sort of getting back to that precision incentive idea. Um, a lot of my work focuses on thinking about how is it that we design incentives that are designed for teens and young adults. For example, acknowledging that, especially for teenagers, but also often for young adults, there is still a parent who is playing a large part in these different decisions, but also the teens, unlike younger children for whom, you know, the parent might really be able to just shove and say, yeah. you're going to do this because right. you have to do this. Yeah. But with teens, it's often not that case. And then the final um, aspect of my work is I always am thinking about the different health policy levers that can be pulled across all of this. And one major area of work that I'm, I'm working on now is thinking about the move towards paying for value in our healthcare system um, rather than paying for volume, which is the way most of our traditional healthcare system has historically been set up. And here in North Carolina, there have been some, uh, not have been, are currently, we have some major moves within our public and private sectors of healthcare that are moving towards value. And so a lot of my work is in that space as well, which as it turns out is mostly built on incentives, either incentives targeted at providers like myself or targeted at patients. And you also maintain a clinical practice, don't you? That's correct. I see teens and young adults in my clinical practice. I don't know where you find the time for it, but... uh. (laughs) Yeah, I see teens and young adults in my clinical practices ages 12 to 26 years old, and I do um, ranging from primary care, like well-child checks, to specialty care. I'm a lot of, for example, complex reproductive health care needs, particularly for young women. That must be a very interesting topic as well. To, it to sure is. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Chuck, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, in your individual research program, you look at kidney stones. And as we discussed before we came on the air, something I noticed was that you typically, your materials refer to urinary stones as opposed to kidney stones. And that got me to wondering uh, are they not the same thing, or, or what, what's, what's the story with that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so they are the same thing, actually. Uh, I think most people refer to them as kidney stones because that's how we've always talked about it. The, um, the, the shift of the term urinary stone disease, I think, is trying to capture the fact that everyone thinks about the kidney stone, which oftentimes when they occur are, let's say, excruciatingly painful. That might yeah. be an understatement for Indeed. those that have had them. The, the thing that gets lost in that is everyone is so focused on this event that is so painful they think they're probably about to die if they haven't had a stone before yeah. that we miss out on the fact that this is actually a chronic metabolic condition. Um, and it's a chronic metabolic condition that results in the urine being um, essentially set up just to promote the formation of stones. And so you have this chronic, medic- this chronic condition going on that's actually punctuated by these what I call stone attacks. Um, and so we know this about heart disease, right? Everyone knows that if you smoke, if you eat poorly, if you don't exercise, this all contributes to your risk of a future heart attack. Many times patients come to me and say, well, no one told me I could do anything to prevent kidney stones, or no one told me that there were some behaviors associated that makes my risk of kidney stones worse. Um, and so that, I think that's the, the, the reason for trying to shift the terminology a little bit to get people to think about that this is all about the urine um, mm-hmm. and really how do, how do we think about this as a chronic metabolic condition rather than just this horrible stone attack. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you're really changing the mindset uh, as to what, what is up with kidney stones. It, it really is a paradigm shift in, cha- in, in our thinking. Mm-hmm. About the stone, about stone disease. Well, um, as we discussed earlier, uh, it's it had always been my impression, based on uh, no hard facts that I can recall at least, that uh, North Carolina w- w- led literally led the world in kidney stones. Now you corrected me on that, and I appreciate that. That, uh, that it's a very high incidence in this area, but not necessarily in the world. But um, what would you attribute? that high incidence in this area too is there is there an ecological factor at work well i would say it's most likely many factors 
there, historically, North Carolina has been really in the heart of what we call the Stone Belt. And so we know from epidemiologic studies that all across the southeast and, and actually more recently even to the southwest part of the United States, um, there are just tremendously more people who form kidney stones. And we haven't always understood exactly why that is. But some of the things, some of the emerging epidemiologic evidence which suggests a number of factors are at play. Um, one of these is diet and lifestyle. So um, research that I published shows very clearly there's a link between having diabetes, being obese or overweight, um, having conditions like gout, so what we might refer to as the metabolic syndrome, clearly increases your risk of having a kidney stone. And what we also know is that the prevalence of all of those conditions are much higher across the southeast than they are in other parts of the country. So that's certainly one factor. Um, hydration is particularly important, um, as is the weather. So one thing that the data also very clearly demonstrate is that when days are hotter, um, you have a much more like a, a much higher risk of forming kidney stones. There's a very clear spike in the incidence of kidney stones over the summertime, for example. Um, and so one thing that I always counsel my patients about is really drinking water and the, and the key importance to that for uh, preventing kidney stones. There's also good data around when military personnel are deployed to very hot environments, they very rapidly begin to form stones. So this is a, a really critically important question for many people. So I would say there are many factors here. One thing that patients always ask me about that we actually don't know the answer to is, well, what about my well water? Many people in North Carolina have well water, right? Yeah. And, and we know there's probably some variation in the component of those I, well waters. I did until recently, and I always did wonder if that, exactly. if and that so, was a so, possibility. And th that's an open question, but it's a common patient question. They sure. wonder if it's the water that they're drinking. Now, what I always tell them is that the most important thing you can do is drink more water, right? Okay. Because at the end of the day, um, dilution is the solution. We really want to get... The I urine like dilute, <laughs> very clear, and that is what is the number one recommendation for you know what we can do in terms of our lifestyle to prevent kidney stones in the future. I see, very good. Well, I saw in uh, in your material that the incidence of kidney stones actually doubled in men and quadrupled in women between 1984 and 2012. Uh, do you have any theories as to why that would be the case? Uh, is is like everything else, is global warming uh, involved? Oh, it's a great question. Um, and it's not the first time this week I've been asked that question, actually. So the, um, and, and what I would say is, as a scientist, the things we know are that there's very clear evidence that when days are hotter, we have a greater risk of forming kidney stones. Um, we also see with the global warming that the number of days where we have these extreme temperatures um, are certainly increasing. And I think it's only a matter of time before we have very clear evidence that, um, that that might have an impact on the epidemiology of kidney stone disease. There's actually been a very intriguing paper published in um, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science in 2008 where they did a model and they showed, well, what might be happening to the kidney stone belt, as it were, the stone belt that we talked about before, mm -hmm. and how far north in the United States might that um, advance if um, global warming continues at current trends. And um, so it's a, I think it's a critically important question, and it really demonstrates the potential impact on individuals' health um, in addition to that. So, Is anyone uh, doing uh, animal studies in this area? Um, there are people looking at some of the basic mechanisms of why do we form kidney stones in animal models. Um, it's an interesting line of work. There's a, there's a whole theory which I've alluded to um, just a few minutes ago in talking about how maybe a lot of this is going on in the urine, and maybe it's mostly about the concentration of the urine. But there's an alternative theory which says that maybe this is a, um, has to do with um, calcium deposits in small blood vessels in the kidneys. And the reason why that makes sense is because there's you know good um, micrographic electron scanning microscope um, studies where we've looked at these small vessels, not us personally, but other investigators, and they very clearly see these small crystals that are forming calcium deposits that then maybe extrude into the urine and start the start the, off the stone formation. Mm -hmm. But the other thing we see is there's a very clear um, there's good evidence for a link between kidney stone disease and developing other conditions in the future like chronic kidney disease, um, um, heart disease, coronary artery disease, and other calcium dis disorders of calcium deposition in the body. Um, and so whether those are just um, risk factors that all happen to work toward the same path or whether it's a sign of overall calcium handling disorder is an open question in, a, in an active uh, area of active research in the basic science of kidney, kidney stone disease. I see. So can kidney stones lead to serious complications? 
Absolutely they can. And one of the things that we see most frequently in urology is if you have a urinary infection that gets blocked up behind a kidney stone, that's actually a life-threatening event. And sometimes we see people that stay in the hospital in an ICU setting for a week or more. Um, occasionally we see people that die from this. And that's something that people actually don't know about is that a fever and kidney stone symptoms are an emergency and you need to see a doctor, ideally an emergency room right away. Well, that that's good to know. Uh, definitely keep in mind for the future. <laughs> well, uh, you talked about the calcium. I, is that what kidney stones are are comprised of? Yes. So the most uh, the most common type of kidney stones is uh, made from calcium and something called oxalate, um, which is a substance that is commonly found in our diets, mostly in um, spinach. For example, is actually the number one um, source of calcium uh, or excuse me oxalate in our diet. Um, calcium obviously is found in many things. It, you know, the interesting story about calcium is that it is um, an obviously important part of our diet. Back in the day, when we didn't know as much, we used to think that, well, if calcium is in stones, you should stop that in your diet. You should really reduce that. And we actually caused more stones to form. And the reason why is because we didn't understand the role of calcium and oxalate together in the gut, binding up that extra oxalate. Um, so they work together. So what we, um, what we counsel patients now is that you need to have the right amount of calcium. So a moderate intake of calcium is good. Too much is bad, too little is bad. Sure. Um, and so we try to get people to really think about the recommended daily allowance and, and really focusing on that. So what, what is the state of the science uh, when it comes to uh, treatment? Um, so there's a lot of good treatment alternatives out there. We've actually made incredible strides in terms of the surgical management of kidney stone disease. It, um, you know, 20, 25 years ago, we used to have, have to cut people open entirely um, to treat all these different stones, and it was a very common procedure. Now, actually, we manage to do these procedures for the vast majority of them, more than 95% of the time, we actually make no incisions at all. Either we send um, shockwaves through the body without making any new holes and break up the stones and then come out, or we use a small telescope and go through the urethra and the bladder to access a stone, break it out with a laser, and pull out the pieces. Um, and the, the most invasive surgery these days is typically where we have to make an incision about an inch or inch and a half wide and we stick a scope directly into the kidney to break up very large kidney stones there. So we've really made tremendous advances there. Where we remain lacking is the development of medical treatments to prevent kidney stones. And that's really where um, understanding the role of diet, lifestyle, and medications that will essentially adjust the urine so that it is less friendly to making kidney stones. Um, that's really where the state of the science is right now and where the most to be gained is. So, And that, that is a subject that you are actively uh, studying at this point, right, with your uh, PUSH study. That's exactly right. And I would say that this is where my, sort of my, um, my career has naturally evolved into this area of behavioral incentives um, because what we realize is that um, while we've made these tremendous technology advances in surgically managing stones, we've done nothing to stop this epidemic of stone disease that you mentioned to earlier, where the prevalence of stones in the United States has nearly doubled, and almost 50% will have a recurrence within five years of that first kidney stone. Really? So wow. how do we address mm -hmm. that is really the, the key problem. And as I mentioned, the very first intervention dietary-wise in all the guidelines is drink more water. And so the question for PUSH is, how do we get people to drink more water? Um, and so very briefly, PUSH is a study that's being done across the country at four different centers, um, University of Pennsylvania, UT Southwestern, um, University of Washington in Seattle, and Washington University in St. Louis. And the goal is using a water bottle that automatically tracks how you sip fluid or how much fluid you intake to get people to drink more fluid based on a personalized goal. And we provide a program of some behavioral incentives as well as coaching um, and really be responsive to how well are they doing with their adherence in order to achieve this goal of um, increasing fluid intake and thereby decreasing kidney stone recurrence. And that's actually our primary outcome. Is there any way to actually quantify a decrease in, in kidney stone occurrence? Um, well, we have to see what happens in the population, um, and we know from longitudinal studies of kidney stone formers that um, over a two to three year period, typically that's where you will begin to see the effect on a large population scale of these kind of interventions that will prevent kidney stone disease. And so that's what the PUSH study is powered for, is over a two year follow-up period um, with just under 2,000 patients, 1,964 patients, wow. that that will be what's required to show a difference. Yeah, okay, so you're quite adequately powered then. 
That's that's our goal. Yes. So, so where is kidney stone research uh, headed in the future? What what are what's the cutting edge at this point? That's another great question. So I think understanding the metabolism of things like oxalate um, and our diet, how we can, again, leverage behavioral economics to not only get people to increase fluid intake, um, but other dietary measures. Um, for example, salt intake is really a critical component of stone prevention. Uh, the reason why that is is because if you have too much salt in your diet, your kidneys excrete that salt, but they also excrete a lot of calcium as well, and so that increases your calcium, which again, as we talked about before, increases your stone risk. The great news is that the doctor is already telling us that having too much salt in our diet is bad, right? Indeed. So, so this goes right along with the things we talk about of high blood pressure, heart failure, other risk factors that can be um, from cardiometabolic disease and, and increased salt intake. So really, how do we get that, um, how do we get that done as well and understanding what these um, drug targets are right now? Well, we'll, we'll have to do this again and uh, devote an, uh, a whole hour to kidney stone Absolutely. Research. It's a fascinating topic for me. <laughs> it is. Well, how, how did you two uh, connect for, uh, for BRISC? Uh, we actually both knew each other because uh, one of the training programs that we did after our clinical training was called the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program. Mm -hmm. And we were in that program at the same time I was at the University of Pennsylvania. Chuck was at the University um, of California at Los Angeles. And so we met each other there. And then when we both ended up at Duke, we were connected by um, some of our the folks that we work with um, at Duke. And that's where the whole idea sort of sprung out of. I think we were also both focused on these different health behaviors and sort of alluding to what Chuck was saying, thinking about how we prevent disease before it even gets going. Um, and so as a pediatrician, that's really what we think about. And for example, I'm um, on the leadership of what's called the Duke Children's Health and Discovery Initiative. And our mission is to end disease before it begins, which is often in childhood. And so thinking about these behaviors and some of the stuff that we work on together are behaviors that we know are good across such a broad spectrum of health and disease, including, for example, physical activity. Much of my work focuses on physical activity in children to help prevent things like cardiometabolic disease, childhood obesity, but physical activity is also good for many of the diseases that Chuck tries to prevent and treat within urology. Well, Charlene and Chuck, uh, it's been great having you today on Radio In Vivo. And thanks for joining me and making the trek all the way from Durham. And best of luck for great success with Brisk and your own research activities. Thank you so Thank much. You. It was great. We've got great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio In Vivo. You can check the website, radioinvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on Volunteer Power, WCOM-FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. And if you enjoy the show, we ask that you support this station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>